Amen. You can have a seat. Unless you're a fourth or a fifth grader, then you can uh, head on back to our kids' ministry. Your leaders are waiting for you out that door. Uh, good morning. My name is Scott. I'm the, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you uh, after the service. Um, if I've met you before, I'd love to see you anyways, because I still like you. So, um, you know, we, we, we sang a couple of songs there that talk a lot about um, Christ's work on the cross. Christ's work on the cross, in particular, uh, defeating death and the power of hell. And what on earth does that mean? <laughs> What does that even mean for, for you and I um, to think about this idea of the power of, of hell? Uh, we talked last week a lot about the nature of, uh, the, of the relationship that God has between heaven and earth uh, and hell as a result of that. But, but when you think of hell in particular, what do you think of? I think many of us uh, have some sort of... Um, caricature that maybe is shaped by images like from Dante's Inferno or from John Milton's Paradise Lost, images like these, this idea of, of this demon and pitchfork and burning fires and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not sure what you think of when you have that conversation or, or this idea comes to mind, but I, I actually think it's an important question for us to ponder, uh, in particular because Jesus talks about it, uh, but also because I believe Uh, that how you think about what is to come impacts how you live your life now. How you think about the afterlife, think about heaven and hell, shapes the way you move through your life today. Uh, Maybe even subconsciously, let alone um, on purpose. So that's a question we started to pose last week. Uh, This question continues to show up as we follow Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew into chapter 25. Uh, Last week, let me give you just a quick refresher from last week. Uh, We noted that there are two different stories that we can tell about the relationship of earth and heaven and hell. Right? And, and it kind of looks like this. On the left, uh, you have the story that most of us are most likely to tell. This typical story that says, today I live on earth, one day I'll die. And if I'm good enough, God will send me up to heaven. And if I'm not, he's going to send me down to hell to be punished for what I did. Right? So that's the story we kind of start with. It's mostly about us. It's mostly about uh, ourselves and avoiding pain and our actions. Right? But the gospel tells a different version of that story. That story tells us that heaven's primary relationship and primary counterpart is not hell, but it is earth. That God created heaven and earth. And heaven and earth were created in an integrated relationship. And that relationship was torn apart by the power of sin. And like everything in the gospel story, that relationship is bound to be reconciled. That's the work that God is doing. God's purpose is not to remove us from earth uh, and send us into a fiery hell or, or heaven. It is to get the power of hell out of earth so that he can reconcile the two together. So that's kind of where we've been uh, in this conversation. So today, what do I think about hell specifically? Right? Because I still have all kinds of questions about what that is. If hell is not, I don't know, somewhere I go underground uh, when I die to be tortured, then what is it and where is it? 
Where does it go when God reconciles heaven and earth together? And does it just poof, go away? Because it doesn't seem like that's the story. So we're going to talk about that today. Well, today we're going to talk about two things that I think will help us understand the nature of hell according to the Bible, not our imaginations. And those two things really are, we're going to talk about the nature of hell on earth today. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is the nature of hell to come after this version of earth, when God does this work of reconciling heaven and earth. So we're going to talk about those two things. And then finally, I want to leave you today with three ways in which this new understanding of an afterlife can shape your life today, right now, and make it matter. Okay, so that's where we're going. Let's start uh, with Jesus. Let's start with the story he tells in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, when this, this is Jesus talking, he says, when the son of man, man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's kind of talking about this judgment day, right? This end of things, this beginning of this reconciliation. And he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd shep- separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay, so let's talk about this image for a second. Because Jesus is, is describing something that happens uh, in typical cities of this time in history. Uh, typical cities have walls with a gate, one gate, one way in, one way out. The walls protect those who are inside from uh, whatever is outside. Uh, and there's actually a seat, a judgment seat is what it's called, or a throne that is in the city gates. Uh, let me give you a little example. Let's imagine um, behind me is the city. You all are all outside of the city. And the city walls kind of run across the stage here, right? They just continue on around the city that way and that way. And this stage serves as a gate to allow you and me to kind of move back and forth. And they have this seat, that sort of gets set up like this sideways, right? And the ruler of the city can sit on the seat. And this is really important because the ruler of the city has the opportunity to decide which one of you get in here, right? So that's why it's called the judgment seat. Are you dangerous? I can't let you in. Are you good? Are you, you know, what's gonna happen? And so if I let you in, you can move on to my right inside of the city. Hi, Ben, we're really close. If I don't let you in, you stay on my left, right? Outside of the city. So that's, that's the imagery Jesus is using when he's having this conversation. He talks about sheep and goats and he talks about the shepherd, but he also gives this imagery of a city saying, okay, you can come in or you can go out. Are we tracking? We're good. I hope the seat helped. I don't know. All right. So we'll skip down a few verses as he keeps talking to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left right? Those on the outside. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look, look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, 
For one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then, again, they, the people on his left, right, outside the city, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So this particular set of scriptures, I think, has the ability to shape our imaginations about the nature of heaven and hell, right? There's eternal fire, there's torment, there's uh, the devil and his angels all outside the city, right? It sure sounds like the story of heaven and hell we tend to tell ourselves, doesn't it? I want you to hold on to that image a little bit, that picture of city and goats and fire and sheep, because I think there's a lot more to this story that informs how we understand what Jesus is talking about. So um, let's talk first about separation. That's what's happening in the story, isn't it? The judge, God, Christ, is separating things out, separating goats from sheep. And at the end of the days, as we talk about the story of heaven and hell, we talk about a story will, where God will separate out the power of hell from earth today. It's all separation, good from evil, sheep and goats. So if the end of all things is this great separation, that must mean that today our life does not have that separation, that it's all mixed in together. If that's the story Jesus is telling about what is to come, then the story he's inferring about what is, is that we are engaged with that power of hell today, right now. Good and evil, sheep and goats, or elsewhere in the Gospels, he talks about wheat and weeds, but that is what is to come. So that means today they're mixed in together. That the brokenness of sin is in our world right now. And that's pretty apparent. I think for most of us, isn't it? But let's talk about it. I saw this week that uh, in the United States, just the United States alone, between 50,000 and 100,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery every single year. In fact, I was reading one story of a woman uh, who said she spent night after night in different hotel rooms with different men, all at the command of someone she once trusted. She was held against her will. She was beaten and made to feel like she had no other option because of this person she once loved. It's heartbreaking. There's hundreds of thousands of those stories because the power of hell is real. Human trafficking is a hell on earth right now. It exists. And we live in a country where that happens. We not only live in a country where sexual slavery and trafficking destroys lives, we live in a country that experiences murder on a regular basis. Men walk into schools and murder children. In 2022, the last 11 months, 2,466 people have lost their lives in this way. There have been 589 mass shootings over the past 314 days. Mass murder is hell on earth today. The power of hell is real in our world. And Jesus actually has a lot to say about this power of hell on earth right now. In his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, Joshua Ryan Butler points out that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus talks about hell, he consistently relates the power of hell to three things. 
lust, violence, and religious hypocrisy. When Jesus talks about hell, he is almost always talking about lust, violence, and religious hypocrisy. Isn't that interesting? That last one in that list is particularly interesting. In fact, we've actually talked a lot about it over the last month or so uh, in, these, in these conversations Jesus has with religious people. So let's talk about the first two a little bit more then. Let's talk about human trafficking. Humans who enslave others because of depraved sexual desire is a widespread problem around the world. But Jesus brings it really, really close to home in Matthew 5, and he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. One of the things that Jesus talks about when he talks about the power of hell is lust. What about mass murder and a school shooting? That's a problem in our world. But Jesus also says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be the subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks about it in ways that we do not. We talk about the power of hell resulting in human trafficking. Jesus talks about the power of hell as a result of lust. We talk about the power of hell resulting in mass shootings. He talks about anger as the power of hell. Or we talk about the power of hell as a result of not obeying God's laws. And he talks about religious hypocrisy as the power of hell. In fact, to the, to the religious people, he says, you will travel land and sea to convert one person. And when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. I mean, the way Jesus thinks about hell is so different than the way I tend to think about hell, right? Because I think when we think about the power of hell on earth today, we can say, yeah, I see it. But we tend to think about more of the branches of the tree and not the root. Think about a tree, right? We tend to trim the branches. There's human trafficking over here. That's got to stop. That's not okay. Let's trim that awful, ugly branch. Or there's a school shooting over there. That's not okay. That needs to stop. We need to cut off that branch. So maybe we become activists in some kind of way, right? We champion the cause. Maybe we raise money. We put rules or legislation and laws in place. We put the bad guys in jail. We trim the branches. But we don't address the root. Because all those branches... They grow out of this root of sin and hell that is present in every one of our lives personally. Because I have never been anywhere near related to anything about sex trafficking, but I have lust. And Jesus says that if you look at one of his daughters or sons, turning them into an object 
for your own desires, then the power of hell has its roots inside of you. I've never committed a mass shooting or murdered anyone, but I have anger. And Jesus says that if you're nice to people on the outside, but angry at them on the inside, then the power of hell has its roots inside of you. And so we see the power of hell at work in things like human trafficking or mass murder, but Jesus takes it so much further. He says that it's the anger inside of us. It's the lust inside of us. It's the religious hypocrisy inside of us. The nature of hell is present today, right now. And it's real. And Jesus takes it really seriously, probably more seriously than you and I do. Because many of us would rather attend to the branches than address the root. So what does that mean for you today? How seriously do you observe the power of hell at work in your life? Do you spend more time on the branches instead of the root? These are important questions that when Jesus talks about the power of hell, cause us to dig inside of what's going on in here. So if the power of hell is present in this world, and it seems pretty apparent that it is, then we know that it enters the world through us. Let me remind you of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says that when we see branches that are evil and exhibit the power of hell, it comes out of the tree. And I think it can be really, really easy to uh, abstract the power of hell and sin in our world as social, that it affects our community, and it absolutely does whether it's widespread trafficking or problems with violence and destruction or systems of religion that are built to empower some and disempower others, the power of sin releases hell on our earth in very real social ways. But it's not just social, it's personal. Because all that fruit comes from somewhere. And Jesus says it comes from us. Personally, you and me, we are the agents of destruction in our world, not him. It's sort of like the idea of of wildfire season. Every year I kind of hear about, oh, it's wildfire season out west. Uh, In fact, I have have a relative who was was hiking out west and had to be evacuated with a helicopter uh, one year because the wildfires were out of control. And that wildfire destroys hundreds, even thousands of acres. But it always starts with a campfire or a firework. Some tiny spark that left unaddressed rages into destruction out of control. In fact, James uh, talks about this way in his book in the New Testament, the same way, but using the imagery of our, our tongues. He says this in chapter three, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. 
So we spread some gossip around the office and we breathe a little bit of hell into the world. We spread some misinformation, perhaps about an election this week. We emotionally manipulate someone. We arrange the system toward our benefit. And that spark unleashes hell on the world we live in. And eventually, it turns into a raging wildfire. In our misunderstanding of the nature of how we draw a caricature of an underground torture chamber with devils with pitchforks where God tortures sinners. But hell isn't out there somewhere. It's us. It's torturing our world today, right now. And when Jesus relates the power of hell to lust and to to violence and to religious hypocrisy, those are all human traits. They're not traits about God. So the nature of the power of hell is that it's real and it is present in our world right now. And not only do we recognize it, we participate in unleashing it on the world. Now that might be obvious to you. I I don't know. Maybe you're, you're shaking your head going, yeah, that makes sense. I get that. Not, not, not new information, but I think starting there matters. I think starting with the way Jesus talks about the nature of hell uh, matters for a building block for what comes next. Because there is a hell in the world to come as well, right? So if we remember that image from last week, the story that the gospel tells us about hell is, is that God is in the process of reconciling heaven and earth. And to do that, he needs to rid earth of the power of hell that is present in our world. And when he does that, what happens to it? Where does it go in the future? So I want to I do a little word study of the word Jesus uses when he talks about hell. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, it's a specific word called Gehenna. We translate it as hell in our Bibles. It's Gehenna when Jesus says it. Uh, And in fact, here's a couple of scriptures throughout Matthew uh, where we see it. Anyone who says, you fool, be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into Gehenna. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to Gehenna? Interestingly, Matthew 5.22 is all about anger. Matthew 5.30, as we read earlier, is all about this, this lust. And then Matthew 23, he's talking to these religious leaders. Lust and violence and hypocrisy, all part of this. But that, what's interesting about the word Gehenna is not just that we translate it as the word hell, but that it is an actual reference to a physical place. Like there are GPS coordinates to Gehenna on our planet, right? It's a location you can find on a map right next to Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. Um, This is kind of an artist rendering of, you can see the temple of Jerusalem there and the sprawling city around it. And right outside that city is this valley, the Hinnom Valley. Now throughout Israel's entire story, the Hinnom Valley has played a particular role. It's one of those words that as you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, you might just skip by because you don't know anything about it, right? But while Jerusalem serves as God's city 
It serves as this place where God's presence lived. They literally believed God's presence was living in the temple. Gehenna, on the other hand, the Hinnom Valley, was a place where you could go outside of God's presence. It's a place where people could offer sacrifices to other gods of the nearby nations. So the Valley of Hinnom was a place that you would go to worship the idols of other gods, to cheat on God, if you want to use that relationship language, through idolatry. Because the ancient people understood uh, it is a total common practice to sacrifice to many gods. The goal was try to get the gods on your side, right? Make them happy so they would send rain so your crops would grow or whatever it might be. So your job was to offer them pleasing sacrifices. If Yahweh, if the God of Israel wasn't quite cutting it for you and your life wasn't going the way you wanted, you can step outside of the city, turn the corner, and now you're in this valley where it's normal to offer sacrifices to other gods. In fact, the more valued your sacrifice, the more pleased the gods might be, and the more they might listen. Eventually, this escalated into sacrificing the most valuable thing you had, your children. And so this became a place of child sacrifice, amongst other sacrifices. So throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would speak about this valley. They would often uh, chastise Israel about this valley because it became the symbol of idolatry and child sacrifice. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, it says this, that Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. So he followed our God, but you know, other gods too. And he burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so when Jesus talks about where this is all going, he uses this word, Gehenna, this place outside of the city. Inside is a place of intimacy and wholeness with God. Outside is a place of infidelity to God and deep, violent injustice to each other. This is the future of hell that he describes. Outside the city, it will be just like Gehenna. And when Jesus describes the nature of hell like this, I think there's two really important things we need to recognize. Because he says, when this happens and we kind of do this separation thing, outside is going to be this Gehenna-like thing where all this idolatry and sacrifice is happening. And the first thing we need to know about this future reality is that those sacrifices are burned by human hands, not God's hands. God did not create a system where child sacrifice is required. We did. Humanity did. When we think about hell, I think it's, it's, it's easy to think of it as a place that God sends us to punishment, that God is cruel, but he's not. We are. The people walked outside of the city and lit the sacrificial flames. God did not create a place of hell, of Gehenna, as a place of punishment to send us there. We create it, and he allows us to choose it. 
To think of this place outside the city as where hell will dwell for all eternity when God kicks it out of earth is to recognize that it is a place that God allows us to stay in the mess that we created. So that's the first thing to kind of notice about this image Jesus gives us. The second is to notice that God allows hell to exist for protection, not punishment. Here's what I mean. If you uh, look in, in one Old Testament prophet talks about this future reality and he says this in Zechariah 2, Jerusalem, God's city, will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. This is how I know dogs go to heaven. Animals will be there, right? In the city. And God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within So the walls of this great city are gone. Anyone can enter in. God's presence will live there in holy and reconciled relationship. And that very presence will create a boundary protecting those within it from what is outside. I like to think about it with the idea of chivalry. Chivalry is not dead, right? Uh, In fact, I I know someone uh, who was really into the idea of chivalry uh, while he was dating his wife. Um, And so he would do things like he'd open the car door for for her, you know. He would uh, open doors for her when she walked in there, pull out her chair, all that kind of stuff. He was like super, that was like his, his thing. And whenever they would go for a walk down the road, whether it was on a sidewalk or just on the side of the road, he would intentionally place himself on the inside of the path, right? Place himself between her and the traffic. Because in his mind, he says, this is the best place for me to be if something on that dangerous road starts to creep in our direction. I can stand in the way, I can push her out of the way. Maybe he's really strong and can stop a car with his bare hands. I don't know. This was the best place he felt to defend her or rescue her from the danger that is next door, to stand in between her and the danger. So when God removes the dangerous power of hell from earth, he'll send it outside the city and God's presence will become this boundary between the inside of the city and Gehenna. Gehenna outside God's city is important because it exists as a place of protection, not a place of punishment. Because if that place does not exist, we will keep bringing the power of hell inside the city. We did it in the creation story. We do it every single day here on earth. And if God does not protect us from the power of hell when he reconciles heaven and earth, we'll keep doing it forever. He knows that. I can't allow that to live inside of the city, so it has to be outside of the city. So let's go back to our image of sheep and goats, because I think this is where it all kind of pulls it together. Jesus says, at the end, we'll separate these things. Inside of the city will be this reconciled relationship with a loving God, and I will protect you from the power of hell that you are likely to unleash in my city by keeping you outside of the city, if that's what you choose. And he uses this image of sheep and goats. The sheep go inside to God's presence. The goats go outside away from God's presence. Now, the imagery really matters. And I don't know how many of you are shepherds, probably none, right? But here's the thing you need to know about sheep. 
Uh, I was in Ireland last, uh, last spring and I got to see like a sheepdog demonstration, which is really cool. But here's the thing you need to know about sheep. They're really dumb. Sheep are very dumb animals. They do not have much of a mind of their own. It is in their nature to just follow the sheep that's in front of them. So a dog can run around and kind of move them and the whole thing moves, right? Sheep will just follow what the other sheep are doing. Now goats are different. Goats are smart. Too smart for their own good. Because goats are constantly blazing their own trail. They are not interested in following what the other dumb sheep are doing. They're interested in going, oh, that's a funny smell over there. I'm going to figure it out. Oh, I heard a sound over there. I'm going to go, oh, it's a lion. I'm dead, right? That's a goat. So the king creates a holy city where his presence exists without the destructive power of hell. And the sheep follow the shepherd into the city. But the goats are strong-willed and they are stubborn, and they keep choosing life outside the city. They keep choosing to say, God is not enough. There's got to be something else for me out there. My life isn't going the way I want it to. I got to be able to do something about that. So I'm going to walk outside the city and make my own way. And so the goats, or the sheep go in and the goats stay out. And the shepherd has to keep the goats away from the flock. Because otherwise the sheep are going to follow them. They're going to follow them to their own detriment. He protects the sheep from the destructive power of hell. And so when we add all of that up in the picture Jesus gives us about what is to come and what happens to hell, not only here on earth, but after uh, God reconciles, is that we come to the conclusion that while the power of hell exists, both now and in the future, we see that we are the ones that choose where to go. Because I don't believe that God wants anyone to experience the power of hell. I believe he is grieved by human trafficking and by school shootings. And I also believe that he is grieved by lust and anger and religious hypocrisy. I believe that that breaks his heart and he does not want us to experience the power of hell. But he does allow us to choose it for ourselves. He allows us to walk outside of the city, to turn left, and to have the life we've always believed we wanted. We want it our way in our goat-like hearts. So heaven is not this locked city, right? It is this holy city of reconciling heaven and earth where we are freely welcomed in. But if we want to choose to hang on to our own way, our own power, then we will walk outside of the city and lock the door to hell from the inside. Hell doesn't exist because of a punishing God. It exists because of a God that says, you can have it your way, but you just can't have it here. Because sin, the power of hell cannot live here. So this is why I tend to think that the key work of a follower of Christ, a disciple, if you will, is the work of coming to understand the root of sin in our own hearts and choosing to move forward following God's desires instead of the desires of our own hearts. So those are our our, our pictures. We talk about the the picture of hell and the nature of hell today and to come. Now I want to give you some tools. Because I believe that God has given us ways to allow us to draw closer to him and fight the power of hell in our own lives and in the world.
So let me give you three tools that God gives us. The first one is this. It's holiness. It's holiness. That we can talk about heaven and hell all we want. We can talk about the grace of God and how how all-encompassing it is. And yet, I still believe God cares about the way we live our lives. Because he knows that the way we live our lives shapes our hearts. I mean, keep reading throughout the New Testament and a life of self-control, a life of gentleness, of kindness, a life of patience and peacemaking, those are ways that shape our living hearts. When we think about what's good in the world, I think too many Christians work tirelessly against things like war or trafficking or genocide. They work on the social problems of our world, yet still are prideful and self-righteous at home. I think that's a problem. I think that doesn't get at the root of the issue that God gives us tools in our lives, tools of holiness that will shape us. And if we believe the biblical story about heaven and hell and the future of all things, then biblical holiness, living a life of biblical holiness stands against the root of hell in our lives today, right now. We don't live this way because it avoids our ticket getting punched to go down to hell and be punished. We live our lives this way because it brings the reconciliation between God and our hearts closer every day. So that's one tool. We live a life of holiness. Second is justice. Jesus has also given us the tool of justice in our life. Over and over and over again, he talks about how we treat each other. In particular, the least of these, the marginalized, those on the fringes, those without power. He talks again and again. He says, the the, the greatest commandment is to be holy and love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor. Too many followers of Jesus uh, are so focused on righteous lives that they ignore the power of hell in our social sphere. They do nothing to fight the power of hell in our world because they believe that what matters most is personal holiness. Jesus disagrees with you. When we actively love our neighbor who is vulnerable, when we work to free them from the impacts of sin, we fight the power of hell in our world. And then finally, the third one, humility. All our work towards holiness and justice can get derailed when we put ourselves in the center of the spotlight. When we think our way is the right way, when we fail to see other perspectives, when we fail to submit ourselves to God, we have an open door for the power of hell to lead us outside of the city. So make a practice of humility in your life. Admit when you are wrong. Ask for forgiveness. Look through someone else's perspective. Practice the mantra of John the Baptist. He must become greater, I must become less. Holiness is a tool that digs at the root of hell inside of us. Justice is a tool that digs uh, at the root and that has grown into branches in our world that we can trim those branches. And humility is a practice that guides both of those things. Holiness deals with the spark. Justice can deal with the wildfires. And humility places us in a position to pursue both. That's how Jesus talks about what is to come. And the good news of what is to come is that he freely offers us a pathway toward him. He freely offers us a pathway into the city. He says, you don't have to choose to live your life in a way that's only going to hurt you. 
And so we're going to take a moment today and reflect on that invitation through communion, through this practice that reminds us of, uh, of the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ on the cross. When we take this Lord's Supper, we recognize both the promise of a new life in his holy city at the end of our story, but we also recognize God's invitation to walk in his grace today, right now. And so we're going to, let me tell you how we're going to do this. We have four stations, one or two up front, two in the back. There's a lot of you here. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and move towards a, a, a station. You can take your time if you want. Um, you can bump shoulders with the other people in your life who are following God into a city. That's okay. Chaos is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we have gluten-free in this back corner over here, if that uh, is something that would bless you as well. And when you come to the table, you'll be given a piece of bread. And as you take that bread, dip it in the juice and take both of those together. Um, we have this experience for anyone who wants to choose to take a step towards Jesus. If that's you today, if that step is the first step you've ever taken today, you are welcome to participate with us. If for some reason today, you cannot say that I want to take a step towards Jesus, that's okay. This isn't for you then at this moment. Maybe reflect on what God is saying to you instead. But as we participate in this, let me share the words that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, the, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You work against the power of hell today, right now while we wait for him to reconcile all things. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're grateful today that you love us enough to protect us. God, that you love us enough to know that forcing us into a relationship with you will never work, but instead you allow us to choose. So God, I pray that today we would choose life in your holy city that we would choose a life of holiness, of justice, and of humility, and that we would choose to follow you instead of our own goat-like hearts. God, remind us in this moment of what you have done so that we may choose to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is ready for you. You may come as you feel led.